You are unreasonably hard on Taylor Swift. And I'm not. I'm no, not unreasonably are. hard on Taylor Swift. You I are just don't get it. Unreasonably hard on Taylor. No, Swift. everyone else is unreasonably big on Taylor Swift. I just don't get it. Like I've, I listen. I did this after after the last time I mentioned her in the newsletter, and I got all the angry people on the twitters saying all of the angry things and inviting me to go and commit sins of the flesh with various you know instruments. I I went. <laughs> I went to the internets and with a spirit of open inquiry, I listened to some of her most played songs and it is replacement level Mickey Mouse Club Disney Bop. Like it's fine. This is your most curmudgeonly and, and it's not. I, but the thing it's is, okay I, to enjoy something. The thing is, it's I'm not okay saying to people should enjoy it. Isaac McGarnacle. It's I, okay to enjoy something that, that's popular. I'm not, I'm not saying people should enjoy it. I'm not saying she's bad at what it's she okay does. It's for you. Like let yourself – let, let let yourself go here. It's okay for you to enjoy Taylor Swift. It's okay. I, I again. Let's I have be cool. I have I no problem. It's not a. It's not a thing about cool. It's not like again. I'm not saying she's bad. And again, you sold me on that road trip in Minnesota. You sold me on the institution of Taylor Swift. The the nuking her master tape value, sticking it to a record label like that is that is like right down the line for me of things I like about people. So I'm pro Taylor Swift. It's the weird sort of quasi spiritual reverence, like that. There's so much you don't understand. There's more to her. It's, I don't you know, experience it's, that. I think that people. I know you don't, but other people do. Like this is this is the thing. She has cult like status. No one disputes this. Like that is she is a Svengali figure now. I I think she's just a very popular pop star, and women especially feel that they connect to her music. I, I, I look. If she sold a lot of records and everyone's like, "Yeah, she's just a really great pop singer," I'd be like, "Yeah, cool. I, I'm on board." That. It's but like, no, you, you understand the hidden people, meanings, the clues. No, the- you of all people are like, you have to understand. Isaac McGarnacle is a prophet for our time. He reads deeply into the soul of the American psyche, and I mean, you you attribute, you frequently attribute sort of um, guru or prophet or Zen master status to pop musicians. It's just ones that are more obscure. Obscurantism. No, uh, no I don't. And uh, Shane McGowan, as you continue to try and jokingly refer to as Isaac McGarnagle, I never said he was a prophet. I just said he was he was a perfect practitioner and revivalist <laughs> of a particular strand of folk music, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. he was. Mm-hmm. And I think Taylor Swift is a perfect practitioner of a particular brand of American sort of country pop. Rock. Well, she's moved out of the out of the country sphere, I think, for the most part. Is she, so she's just straight pop now? Oh, I mean, I think I think Taylor. I think it should be obvious at the very least that Taylor Swift transcends genres that she's comfortable in. in this in is my a point: is referring to her as transcendental. Like there's, there's <laughs> no, no there. Her there. music, her music defies easy categorization in a particular genre. Because really, "Shake she, It Off" defies easy Shake categorization. It off is, a, is a super fun pop song, but that's, that's not, but the it, easiest you, categorization you can possibly come up with. Shake It her. Off. Of shake it off, but if you were to say that that were emblematic, like that that um, category fit all of Taylor Swift's music, you'd be wrong. That's my only point. Is she's making different kinds of music? Okay, I I have spent the last two weeks asking <laughs> teenage children, male and female, of friends and cousins and relations of various stripes, all of whom profess to be massive Taylor Swift fans. Like, you know, what? Explain it to me. Like, I'm an out of touch forty something. Like, uh-huh. what am I missing? What uh-huh. is the what is the deeper there there? And they all say the same thing. She's so inspiring. Yeah. Inspired to what? Like I asked, that's what I said. What does she inspire you to do? What is the inspiration? She writes, no, she wrote, the, she writes the one that, music. The best answer I got was she inspires me to be inspired, which is like, 
<laughs> it's okay. That's dumb, but kids are it's dumb. A, it's an I, SNL I sketch. She, it's pop star. <laughs> never stop. Never stopping. It's just <laughs> such. But I think she is an inspirational figure. I mean, she writes her own music. She owns her. She charts her. She charted her own path. She has defied, I think, easy genre categorization, and there's something to that. And she has not taken any shit along the way. I mean, you know, Taylor Swift. You just you described know, Sheryl Crow and Shania Twain, neither of whom were, you know, like bigger than the Beatles, which apparently Taylor Swift is. That's my point. Is it's not that she's bad. It's that it's way overblown. Uh, I think maybe she's just more popular than um, uh, Cheryl Crow. I mean, she, also Cheryl Crow's Cheryl Crow's personal life is not the sort of thing one would encourage emulation. And oh, really? Children. Does Cheryl Crow have a dark, dark, tortured personal life? I was not aware you of that. You don't know about Cheryl Crow and Lance Armstrong? No. You don't? No. <laughs> oh, I, I, I. But I mean, I, I wait, get to, to my right. point, at the time in the 90s, Lance Armstrong, like all conquering sports hero, what is Taylor Swift doing right now? Dating the dude in the Super Bowl. You're making the parallel uh, stronger. You're uh, <laughs> Okay, you got to say who the pillar is brought to you by and all that. This week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the Southwest Indian Foundation's Catholic Pueblo Revival Paid Internship Program. Now accepting applications from college-age men for the summer of 2024 paid internship program in Gallup, New Mexico. Guys, this is a really cool thing. Check out the link in the show notes. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the inspiring podcast that brings you inspired Catholic conversation each inspired week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flint, and here is my own inspiration who inspires me to be inspired, um, Ed, the Inspirer Condon. You never stop never stopping, J.D. I don't know that reference. That's okay. <laughs> How you doing, man? I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, but we have an important thing. We have to we have to do something up front in the show because okay. I have had inquiries. Mm-hmm. I've had I've had many inquiries. The inquiries mm-hmm. have come from Michigan. The inquiries have come from Washington. The inquiries have come from um, Great Britain. They have also come so different places. At, at, different as places. far from as far afield as China, or okay. territories claimed by there. Um, people want to know how the speech go last week. Oh yeah. I, uh, I mean, you'd have to ask people who were there, I suppose. From my point of view, it was. Oh, I did. <laughs> okay. Well then you tell me. Cause no, I don't, no, 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 no. I want to know. I want to know how you feel when. I mean, from my point of view. So if you are, if you missed last week's episode, I, uh, was uh, scheduled to give a speech at the Dominican school of philosophy and theology on Saturday. Uh, the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology is a graduate school in California, where I'm a member of something called the College of Fellows. And we had the convocation of the College of Fellows, but then I was scheduled to give a speech kind of to the student body and to Dominicans of the Western province of Dominicans and to like kind of theologians and and people like and grad students and stuff like that who are connected in some way to the DSBT or who wanted to come. And I was a little bit uh, out of luck because I had written the speech. The speech had been put off by COVID and other stuff. And I'd written it years ago and then couldn't and thought I was fine. And then when I went to find it, like two days before the speech, I couldn't, couldn't find it. So, um, so that put me in a, in a hose and, and, and the hose is this, or the, 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 the situation is this, I speak extemporaneously, um, all the time uh, on this show in my day to day life, alone in the car, um, alone in the car on a run, you know, I, um, uh, but also in public places, like I travel a little bit and give talks in places. And, and like this weekend I'm, I'm traveling to a city, uh, to give a talk uh, at a kind of a fundraising dinner for uh, Catholic charities, and um, 
and I'm very glad about that, but it's a talk that I can give extemporaneously, that I have some notes about. It's an encouragement to faithful Catholic um, life and encouragement to sort of courageous charity. And, and, and it's a talk that I can give with some preparation, but from notes. But this talk at the Dominican school had me all psyched out because it was to a room full of like, you know, academics and serious theologians. And I, I wanted them, I, I thought that what I needed to do was to give their kind of talk a sort of serious academic excursus. And I, and I w- did not feel that I was prepared for that. It, it went fine. Um, I think, you know, no one booed me off the stage. People said polite sort of things. From like I liked pulpit, it. Surely. <laughs> yeah. So there's a, le- a kind of a lecture space at the Dominican school, but it, it they had to move it to um, a, a nearby Protestant church because they got more sort of RSVPs for attendance at the speech than the lecture hall at the Dominican school holds. So I sort of gave this from a kind of a pulpit. And, uh, you know, I mean, people were, uh, I, I talked about Gaudium et Spes, which was the subject of the thing and and what I think Gaudium et Spes has to say and what I think it doesn't have to say. And it was it's fine. I mean, nobody nobody heckled. Nobody heckled. I mean, you you seem to know more than I. No, no. Um, I mean, you gave this to Dominicans primarily. Yeah. Did mm-hmm. anyone come up to you afterwards and sort of touch you patronizingly on the elbow and say, you know, you took a good swing at that? No, <laughs> no. You know, I'm which I'm glad. Actually, I, I a Dominican gave me a ride to the airport. A, a professor at the Dominican school gave me a ride to the airport. And he said, oh, your speech was good. And it gave me some things to think about Christology. And then he started talking about Christology. And that actually made me think like, maybe I was, I did okay because I, you know, I mean like, you know, he was actually saying some substantial things instead of like patting me on the head or whatever, which is kind of what I expected. That's good. But you had moles. So you brought this up. No, I, 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 I received no feedback other than that it was a perfectly good speech. Um, I did get a couple of pictures of you in the pulpit, which, which amused me. And I like that. As you know, I, whenever you go anywhere, I like to send you pictures of yourself from the view of the people <laughs> watching you at any moment. So you know that I always have people in the room that amuses me. Um, the reviews were favorable. Okay. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. That's fine. That's um, fine. So what do you want to talk about this week? Well, there's some things I want to talk about, but first, Ed, this is our last show before Lent begins, you know, and so our listeners probably who are listening to this are probably thinking now about how they'll prepare for Lent. And Ed, you always prepare well for Lent. So I, I really actually wanted to ask you, because you always seem to have good Lent, you and your family, in fact, always seem to have good Lenten disciplines and practices. So I wanted to ask you, I guess, what are you doing for Lent? What are your Lenten plans? Um, I I pray more. I try to pray more at inconvenient times. Um, I'm, I'm definitely, I mean, I, I will do various iterations of fasting or whatever throughout Lent. And I tend to take a sort of, um, I tend to take bowl, a bowl of spaghetti approach to Lenten fasting, which is, you know, cometh Ash Wednesday, give everything up. And then mm-hmm. last man standing is the thing that <laughs> I actually gave up. Um, right, right, right. But I, no, I try to adopt a, a good number. I, I, um, I try to do morning prayer very, very early in the morning, uh, every day during Lent. So, you know, alarm goes off at 4.45 or something like that, you know, try and do morning prayer. Uh, 5, 5.30, something like that. I think that's that's helpful. Um, that's a good, you know, a good way of getting yourself in the in the anticipatory frame of mind because you really, you long for Easter if, if you're getting up much earlier than you normally ever would. Uh, I, you know, try and do things like, you know, add Add to the sort of normal daily prayer routine. Make sure you do the Angelus, uh, afternoon prayer, Vespers, um, Compline night prayer, whatever you want to call it. Um, 
you know, I, I try try and I try and make it in our house. We try and make it a sort of you know to do the do the Pauline thing of you know pray unceasingly, you know to really make mm-hmm. it um, yeah. a time of intense prayer and and hopefully prayerful anticipation. So that's that's where we're going with that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about the fasting. I'm gonna. I'll, I've got a couple of things I'm gonna try. We'll see how far we get. I you you're making hand gestures, and it's true. I did tell you that I was gonna try and quit smoking. Um, I'm loath to call that a Lenten discipline though. I'm basically hijacking Lent Lent, to try to give up smoking for the sake of my daughter. Um, I, I'm not one for something that you should really do anyway. Yeah. And you intend Mm -hmm. never to do again. You shouldn't like, well, for Lent, I'm going to meet my Sunday application. Oh, well, okay. Well, I mean that, or, you know, for Lent, I'm going to try and lose 20 pounds or go to the gym every day. It's like, that's, you know, if you want to do that, fine, but don't pretend that that's for Jesus. I, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and in the same way, I'm not giving, I'm not going to try and give up. I don't want to set the bar too high here, you know, make expectations too high. Um, But, you know, I'm not pretending that I'm going to, you know, if I, I, I have in the past tried to give up smoking for Lent, and that is a legit spiritual penance oh for the beautiful you know about dorothy day in that right yeah 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 um, yeah like dorothy day would uh give up cigarettes for lent and then her community would and co- coffee i think too and then her community with whom she lived would urge her to get back to those things um uh, because the, it was a penance more for them than, it, than that has been my experience in the past mm-hmm. when i have tried to yeah. do that is that people tell me that I'm imposing a spiritual discipline on them rather than yeah how should I prepare myself I mean you're the apart from my wife and I suppose my children you're the person no I don't know it's probably tied there but you're the person with whom I speak more than any other on any given day save for the weekends um how should I prepare for nicotineless and will you be nicotineless or will you have a patch or something no I'm not doing that and you go cold turkey or you, you know you don't. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. not. I'm not going to shilly shally around with this. I'm just, you know, I'm gonna gonna stop and um, see how long it lasts. Uh, so, how should I prepare for that? I don't know. Um, I really don't know. You'll probably find me up more hours of the night. So, if anything, I'll be more responsive to you because I'll be, you know, clawing at the, <laughs> you know, clawing at my pajamas. I need smoke. <laughs> and not unable to fall asleep. So, you know, your late night phone calls will probably be answered more quickly than normal. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try my, um, my substitute. I'm going to, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with pistachios. I've chosen. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm going to, you know, are you going to buy them shelled or are you going to shell them? Oh no, I'm going to buy them shelled. I, I, if I'm, if I'm trying to kill a, if I'm trying to kill a craving, I, you don't want to be playing around with the, you know, I'll end up just getting a hammer out and destroying my desk or break your teeth or something like that. Yeah. I don't need that. Um, so I'm hoping that high doses of, of heavily salted, possibly spicy pistachios will, will take the edge off just enough to get me over the initial hump, but we'll see. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, of course it's entirely possible that something high stress could happen at work and it will all go out the window in days that has happened to me before when I have that attempted to quit smoking. Um, and I've had the sort of Leslie Nielsen airplane. I picked the wrong week to give up smoking and like, well, if it's the wrong week. Better start smoking again. Um, so well, we'll now, see. Ed, let me ask you a question that you're not going to like me to ask, but I, I, I want to ask it and I'm going to, um, as you make this effort, uh, or yeah, how can our, uh, listeners, um, pray for you? Kneeling is the preferred posture. <laughs> okay. 
What ought they to pray for? What is your intent? Your what intention can they bring to the Lord for your sake? Uh, none. I, there are things much more important and people much more in need of prayers than me and my childish efforts to quit. Um, what is a petty vice? I this is this is again. I'm not. I'm not spiritualizing this. I'm. I'm a man in my forties who really. I, I look. I never intended to smoke as long as I have. I when when I got married. I fully intended to quit when we had a kid and we didn't have kids for 15 years. And, you know, so I got a lot longer um, than, than I thought. And now, now it is time. It's time to stop pretending. It is time to, you know, bite the bullet. Well, Ed, I'll, I'll certainly be praying for that, even if you don't think it's important. But it is time I suspect we're mailing I... me Marlboro Reds by the end of week one. No. Okay. I won't. I, listen, I know you want to talk about this more and I want to be there for you and everything. But if you don't mind... I do think it's time now for us to talk a little bit about some of the news of the uh, uh, of the Please. church. Um, okay, I, again, I I don't want to steal your your thunder or anything. I just think the listeners want. Okay, uh, Ed, I, I want to talk about something that has been on my mind of late, um, and uh, perhaps it sounds of no surprise, and perhaps initially it will sound like another conversation about that to our listeners who might think that they're bored, but uh, uh, they'll be bored. But I don't think they will be. Uh, because I want to talk about fiducia supplicans, but I want to talk about it from a particular um, angle or a particular perspective. Fiducia, to tell, tell, the, tell the people what fiducia supplicans is in 30 words or less. Anyone who's listening to this podcast knows what fiducia supplicans is. I, we, we don't have to give an exhaustive background to things which are our intelligent, well-read, and incredibly well-informed listenership are well aware. Yeah, that's fair. That's very fair. So I have been thinking, it's February now, Ed, and you know January is a very in the United States is, is often a very sort of slow time in the church's news cycle. But now it's February, and that means we're only really, uh, what, February, March, April, May, June, five months from the next meeting of the U.S. Bishops' Conference. And um, bishops start to think, you know, we're going to have to start talking about elections soon and budgets soon and all of the other things that uh, that happen and uh, as the bishops get ready for uh, for their next meeting. But I, I found myself wondering of late, and I think I know the answer. I'm going to dive into it from a reporting perspective. Um, because uh, So I want to say what I've been wondering, say that I'm going to dive into it from a reporting perspective, and then say what I think is probably the case, although I could be proven wrong by, by reporting. But I have been wondering, you know, whether U.S. bishops, the conference, whether there will be in the works some initiative or some mode of addressing fiducia supplicans at the June meeting of the U.S. Bishops' Conference. In short, I've been wondering, fiducia supplicans is this big thing that has happened in the church. It's made tons of headlines. People are still talking about it. And it has had broad sort of ecclesiastical repercussions. It, it ushered in um, a big deal in terms of the pushback that it got from the African bishops and the way that shaped the Holy See's own response to its document. And one of the things that fell out of the response from the African bishops who pushed back, the, the whole sort of confederation of bishops' conferences of Africa pushed back on fiducia supplicans was a kind of a walk back from the Holy See who said, look, initially we said there won't be more discussion about this. And initially we'd sort of said, you know, this is a matter sort of between the, the priest and his conscience. We now see a role not only for bishops, but for bishops' conferences in sort of talking about how this gets implemented or uh, they went from saying or, by they i mean cardinal fernandez went from saying you can't possibly no one can possibly regulate or stipulate or detail right. how a spontaneous pastoral blessing would go so we're not going to offer any clarity on that and no bishop or bishop's conference has any authority to try and do that either because you couldn't do that in a 
truly spontaneous pastoral setting. And then Cardinal Fernandez came back and said, well, actually, okay, no longer than 15 seconds, not in a sacred space, never at the front of a church. that was because of the pushback of the right. bishops of Africa. Well, yeah. was it because of the pushback of the bishops of Africa or was it because James Martin called in the New York Times and did all of the things that Cardinal Fernandez okay, said, don't point. do I mean, that? Possibly both. So there was that first level of, res- of, of sort of walk back, which was clarification from uh, from the CDF, the DDF, some of which came in the pages of the pillar, even in which the DDF said, "Look, this isn't what it was initially framed to be, and no longer than fifteen seconds, and it has to be spontaneous. These things can't be scheduled, et cetera, et cetera." That was sort of round one. But then, um, what happened when the African bishops developed a more systematic pushback? Um, well, their pushback was, you say, systematic. It was very systematic in that it was coordinated and it was a wholesale. Reduction of fiducia supplicans. They said we aren't doing it. Um, it will not take place uh, for all of these reasons that we have, theological um, and social, and you know, both as a matter of sort of they they said both in in you know in in respect to the church's teaching and also in respect to the particular circumstances of Africa, and then to hear Cardinal Mbongo of um, Kinshasa tell it, he he flew to Rome. <laughs> Stood in front of Cardinal Fernandez in his office and dictated Cardinal Fernandez's letter, you know, rubber stamping right. the whole thing, um, which, which basically had the conference, the the DDF affirm bishops' conferences can play a central role in deciding not only how this gets rolled out, but if it gets rolled out in their own territory. Yeah, and you know, boy, did he right, and uh, it, it, it was remarkable. And I mean, they've been playing a kind of catch up since then i think rome um and i mean i what i i'll be honest a lot of people were you know horrified at fiducius supplicans when it came out and i agree that the document seemed calculated to provoke um extremely high volume responses on both sides and it seemed to me to be a document written in such a way that it was internally coherent and that it said it's proposing something radically new, but at the same time insisting that it wasn't actually proposing anything new, which didn't make any sense to me. Right. Um, so in that sense, it seemed like a calculated provocation, uh, although a poorly calculated provocation as it turned out. But the central thesis of it was never, and we talked about this in the show at the time, never something that I had a particular problem with, which is to say, oh, you can't bless someone who's who's living in a state of sin, which is manifestly not true. Right. Um, the church priests offer pastoral blessings to people in states of sin, objective, obvious, ongoing states of grave sin all the time. I have friends and acquaintances over the years who've lived in irregular domestic or marital situations that have presented themselves um, instead of receiving communion to receive a blessing. Like this is a normal that's part right. of parish that's, life. That's right. In fact, that's the ordinary devotional practice if, you, yes. if you're in a state of... So I, yeah. I've I, never had any difficulty in in that sort of, you know, basic thesis of fiducia supplicans. I did not like the idea of people presenting themselves as a quote unquote couple for a blessing of theirs, you know, however, you, you know, the, the fiducia supplicans is always very clear. We're not blessing the union, we're blessing the the people. And a lot of people got very head up about saying, well, you can't bless the people without blessing the unions. And I, again, I never really bought into that as an absolute premise. I totally understood the, you know, the way it was originally written seemed designed to create a lot of ambiguity there. Um, But Cardinal Fernandez's um, sort of five page clarification press release in early January, I thought was really good in some of the recommendations, stroke instructions it gave 
about saying, you know, and when you when you finish the blessing, make the sign of the cross over each one individually, rather than over the two of right. them, sort of as a couple. I thought, you know, these are things that are that are helpful and and clarifying and everything. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's shaking out in different places now. I mean, we know there are places in the church where it is being very liberally interpreted past all bounds of what Cardinal Fernandez has said it is suitable for or intended to do. And other places like Africa where they're saying, well, we're not doing anything at all with this. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of the status quo. And now I've forgotten where we started with this. Well, so all of that sets the table. Thank you for that. That that's All of that is true. And all of that sets the table for the thing that I have been wondering. Namely, um, will this be a topic? So this is, it's a big deal that Fiducia Supplicants came out in large part because it's a big deal how the African bishops reacted and what just what that means for the life of the church. That I mean, this assertion of Episcopal sort of authority to see the Holy See rescind a sort of um, a set of practical instructions is an assertion of the identity of the bishop, it seems to me, is an assertion of the identity of the bishop outlined in Christus Dominus, the kind of counterbalance to the abs- to the absolute authority of the pope which is affirmed in, in the First Vatican Council, but which is affirmed sort of in the context of bishops being legitimate successors of the apostles in their own right. And uh, and so this has, I think, shifted the ecclesiastical landscape in terms of the way that bishops of the country of the world might relate to the Pope on issues that are controversial or about issues which the, on which they have their own opinions. In the past, you take a more statitia. With a more statitia, you saw bishops... I from nearly places. did a Rodney Dangerfield thing. Please take it. Take it more so teaching. Get it out of here. Um, no, I wouldn't say that. Um, but that's the point, actually. It's so interesting that you say that because with a more what you saw were people who bishops' conferences who thought a more was great, and bishops' conferences which clearly thought a more wasn't great mm-hmm. and who didn't agree with it and who had real problems with it. But everybody, agree or disagree, started off by paying lip service to a more It's wonderful, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And then the direction went, either we will develop an implementation plan, which the Pope will later affirm, like the bishops of Argentina, or we'll kind of ignore it, right? Like we'll just sort of pretend that a morsetizia didn't happen just for, for a set of bishops, hope it kind of goes away, hope we don't get questions about it, say that we're studying it. You know, we'll, we'll just sort of passively let a morsetizia, the hope that a morsetizia will sort of fade into obscurity. I think that is a, an approach – Honestly, I think that's the approach of many American bishops with regard to Morsetitia, for better or for worse. But now um, the African bishops have um, suggested this other mode of engaging with things that uh, bishops might have concerns about. And in my own conversations, I hear bishops in the United States say that they do have concerns about fiducia supplicants less now that the DDF has sort of promulgated all these instructions, but sort of concerns about how it will be implemented or wanting to issue instructions and things like that. And this could be um, if the bishops' conference, if the bishops' conference decided to sort of take up fiducia supplicants, it would be a debate that would dwarf the Eucharistic coherence debate by many orders of magnitude. Oh, it would and, be blood on the carpet. Yeah, it would be. I. So in light of the African bishops, I guess I found myself wondering if that would happen, if there would be some some way in which the bishops would in, in any way sort of address fiducia supplicants at the June meeting, whether they would feel that they should or whether they would just sort of go on. One question, of course, is whether it will come up because whether the apostolic nuncio will in some way raise fiducia supplicants at the meeting, but then whether there will be bishops who would want to say something restrictive about fiducia supplicants or bishops who would want to call for a kind of broad 
affirmational set of applicatory norms to fiduciary supercons in the United States. Where I'm landing, but I'm curious what you think is, I don't think that either conservative bishops who are critical of fiduciary supplicants, so to speak, or bishops who would want to sort of normalize fiduciary supplicants and sort of offer a broad interpretation of it, I don't think either of them will bring that to the conference. I don't think the conference will talk about fiduciary supplicants at all. And I'm glad to talk about why, but I'm curious what you think. Um, I don't see them bringing it up or talking about it at all. And I mean, I wouldn't, the only, and this is terrible, I know it's probably wrong, but you know, if you're <laughs> going to have follow parliamentary procedure in your meetings, you got to expect me to treat you a little bit like a parliament. And so I tend to put my former, you know, parliamentary yeah. staffers hat on and just look at the, you know, look at the vote count and look at the whipping and say, well, what, what's there to gain here? Um, if you bring it up with the bishops conference with a view to what having right. some sort of normative or at least universally directive document or policy so, uh, or statement of affirmation so, or what so that would be the pretext is let's call, let's you know the, there might be a pretext from those who would want a broad progressive interpretation of of fiducial supplicants to carry the day to say uh, we want to call for we want to affirm fiducial supplicants and then call for a working group to develop norms right. right but i mean the shorthand is basically the only reason you bring this up at the bishops conference is if as a group of bishops or as an individual bishop is because because every bishop already has their own idea of what they want to do in their right. backyard and they currently have the freedom to do that so it seems to me the only reason you bring this up at the bishops conference is if you want to be able to try and tell all the other bishops on the other side how they have to do it. well I, that's where i was going is i think that there might also be bishops who want to signal something about fiducial supplicants on either side of it either to their people or to the holy see right so there might be bishops who want to signal to the pope that they're on his team um, by passing in the bishop's conference, again, I, I don't think this will happen, but I was just thinking through the, the ways in which there might be people who would want to signal to the Pope that they're on his team and they're supportive of what they think he wanted with fiducial supplicants by passing a resolution that says we'll, call, we'll put together a task force to develop norms for the implementation or policies or guidelines for the implementation of fiducial supplicants in the United States. There might also be, be bishops who want to signal to their people, uh, we have concerns about fiducial supplicants by passing some kind of resolution that would call for a study group composed of different people, right? That would be sort of aimed at a negative definition of fiducial supplicants. So actually the resolution from the group, from each of those groups might be in substance very much the same, but the motivation for it would be very different from, from each of them. Does that make sense? Well, no, but you're saying you're describing a common motivation just from different sides of the discussion. The common motivation is to virtue signal, you're saying. Is to convey, yeah. I mean, if you want to put it in those terms, is to convey. Um, right, and but there the are easier ways to convey and more effective ways that would spare everyone the unseemly spectacle of, you know, Eucharistic coherence redux. Uh, I think that's right. I agree with you. I yeah. mean, if you're Cardinal Supich, he's never had any difficulty in getting Vatican News or America Magazine or anyone else to print whatever he wants to say about a particular thing. I mean, if he wants or to- Or McElroy for that matter. If McElroy wants to print even in Vatican News itself, the the sort of state media of the whole Has sea. he written stuff for there? I know that, I mean, Cardinal yeah, Sewage has had a couple he was of talking about, things. At the time when McElroy was talking about um, what the Synod could do vis-a-vis -vis Ordinatio Sacramentalis and stuff like that, Vatican media sort of paid attention to what it was that he was saying. Well, everyone paid attention to it because he was subverting <laughs> know, the papal right? authority and directives and suggesting things Vatican that were sacramentally didn't frame it in that way. Vatican media didn't frame it in that way. Well, anyway. So uh, if you're on that side of the argument, you have no shortage of outlets. And if you're, if you're looking to 
narrow the application in line with Cardinal Fernandez's subsequent clarifications, you can say you're going to do so out loud, but really, if you if you want to do that, you want to do that practically. You want a practical outcome. You want to make sure that the priests in your diocese know that this is what the cardinal prefect of the DDF has said is the acceptable limits of this in practical application, and I expect those limits to be respected. So you're, you're better off doing that locally, I think. And, and I think there would be a better if you know if the goal is to be also sort of demonstrative externally and not just practical in your outcome i think you you set up a better more positive impression if you get a sort of domino trend going bishop x or archbishop x comes out with well yeah he, mm-hmm. having read fiducius supplicans having read the ddf subsequent clarifications here's what it's going to look like in my diocese and i expect everybody to be on board with that and then have other bishops sort of, you know, line up and say, oh, that's a good idea. I'll do the same thing. And, you know, one after one after one after one after one, and sort of a, a consensus diocese by diocese grassroots thing emerging, which is positively framed and mutually self-affirming, rather than taking to the floor of a conference hotel somewhere for a big old argument. Okay. I I I'm actually coming to a different position. I, I have another Imagine my of- surprise. <laughs> Look, you and I talked about this on the phone before we made the show, and I I was saying to you, yeah, I don't think anybody has anything to gain from talking about this on the conference. I don't think the bishops who would want to sort of um, affirm a restrictive interpretation of fiducia supplicants have anything to gain because it seems to me the momentum is already carrying in their direction and why have the fight. And I don't think the bishops who would want to entrench a sort of progressive and broadly liberal interpretation of fiducia supplicants have anything to gain because I don't think they have the numbers and they would lose. And you're saying, yeah, and, and maybe the better thing for them to do is to demonstrate that they were the catalyst for a sort of domino effect if they wanted to to virtue signal that in some way. But what if what you wanted to do, we were sort of in agreement about that, but let's just keep thinking about sort of, let's just keep wargaming the conference, if if you will. What if what you wanted to do was lose a fight? What if what you wanted to do was convey to Rome or to certain figures in Rome that you and your friends were singularly on the side of the um, dicastery for the doctrine of the faith or sympathetic to um, Cardinal Fernandez and that, and you wanted to paint everyone else as being in some way opposed to the initiatives of the Holy Father of the DTF. What if you picked a fight to lose it? In other words, to say we should have a broadly progressive interpretation of fiducia supplicants, saw it roundly condemned at the bishop's conference, and then we're able to go to Rome and say, to, to, to cast that, whatever the nuances of it is, these people are, um, are, are anti-Francis. And there has been a narrative in Rome that a large percentage of American bishops are anti-Francis. It's been a pervasive narrative in Rome, and it's been problematic for American bishops because it's prevented them from getting things done, very honestly. But what if there was a desire to sort of say, um, if the Holy See wants to deal with the American Episcopate, it should deal through us, this small minority, because we're like-minded and reasonable, and these other guys are sort of reflexively anti-Francis. What if you were doing that at the same time you couldn't win anything at the conference, and at the same time that you were sort of trying to centralize the Holy See's dealings with the American Episcopate through the Metropolitans anyway? I I think that if that was if that was the plan, 
if that was the plan you came up with, it would be a doubly losing strategy, like to, to sort of set up a straw man fight that you could then lo- performatively lose and then go to Rome and say- And entrench the narrative, I'm entrench the guy the narrative and these that guys you, right. Whatever it was you said, this this group of small-minded, unreasonable bishops- I didn't could, call them small- oh, oh, the others, the others. Yeah, yeah. No, what did you call them? You said something- No, in other words, if you were- oh, sorry, like-minded and reasonable. I heard right, small-minded right. and unreasonable. That was my mistake. I apologize. Um, but if you, you know, I, I, it's, you're not going to win. And I'd say Cardinal Fernandez has already painted that play out of the picture because any pushback on a, as you put it, sort of broad, progressive over-interpretation of fiducia supercons as being in line with what the Pope wants- doesn't stack up if you have a five-page press release from the prefect of the DDF saying no longer than fifteen seconds, no liturgical vestments, no prominent sacred spaces, no, you know, like, like they've. There's, I agree if you examine it closely. No, but it's not even. That's my point. Is it's not even closely. Like the counter argument to this, anyone who says we need to have a broad vote of welcome to this and all it can mean, and you say, well, that's not in line. That's not what Pope Francis thinks. That's not what the DDF want. Why are why are you against the Holy See on this? Like that, it's too easy to play the counter card. And and again, I would argue it's not necessary. Like you'll lose the fight and you'll look silly trying to make the argument because of the Fernandez clarifications. And if what you really want to do is just go to Rome and say, well, we're the people who are on side, all those other guys are anti-Francis, like they oh, do that you think already. You don't need it at all. Yeah. They, they do, do that, that already. already. Like right, they, right, the, right. The, you know, Archbishop Brolio could have a ham sandwich for lunch. They say, ha, ah, see, he's anti-Francis. He's having a ham <laughs> right, sandwich. Right, right. Right. Everyone knows yeah. Pope Francis likes tuna. It's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I and you know again I think the I, the the risk to reward ratio there is is way asymmetrical. Um I I just don't see it. I think the interesting thing is will be um and this could be I think this will be the either the dog that doesn't bark in the night or the starting gun is will your friend Cardinal Christophe Pierre mention it in his opening address? That I think will be what a lot of people are waiting for. Is is Cardinal Pierre going to give them, depending on your point of view, a permission slip to talk about this in a in a sort of open way? Is he going to tell them how they should talk about it or what they should do about it, or is he not going to mention it at all? I think a lot of people, because I mean, you know, I we have we have noted, I have noted uh, that Cardinal Pierre has been sort of stuck for the last couple of years giving the same speech over and over and over and over again about synodality. Um, everywhere he goes, you know, he just gives the same speech about synodality. But in times past, he's been very good, by good I mean effective and conscientious, um, about highlighting to the USCCB things he thinks they should be paying more attention to. And I'd remember, I mean, to bring this full circle, you mentioned Amoris Letizia earlier. I remember Cardinal Pierre saying many dioceses in the United States have failed to implement or fully appreciate or expound upon or entrench the Pope's teaching in a more And you need to do that. You need to do more of that. Like he said that out loud into the microphone and at the USCCB meeting before. So I would I would be interested to see if the nuncio mentions it or if he just sort of turns up and gives the same speech about synodality he always gives. No, I don't expect that he will mention fiducia supplicants. I think that the Why not, JD? Uh, isn't it isn't it what the Pope wants? <laughs> the June meeting is directly ahead of the um Eucharistic Congress and I think Pierre is going to want to drive home as much as he can um, this theme, which he has been trying to drive home consistently. I think he's going to make a final plea for the bishops to emphasize at the Eucharistic Congress um, an alignment between 
synodality and the and Eucharistic coherence or synodality and Eucharistic devotion. Because look, synodality is the Pope's legacy project. And um, Pierre knows that it does not, that it has not sort of played well in Peoria, so to speak, and um, is concerned, has demonstrated concern with the reputation of the Pope among American Catholics. So I think he's going to sidestep the controversy of fiducia supplicants in order to make as strong of an, a, a sort of fourth quarter appeal as he can for the bishops to endorse or um, support synodality during the context of the Eucharistic Congress. Which is the speech he gave in November. Which is the speech he gave in November. Exactly. So he's going to come back and give the same speech again. Yeah, that would be a thing that he does sometimes. Well, that'll be fun. Look forward to that. <laughs> Yeah, yep, 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 yep. I kid because I care. <laughs> Cardinal Pierre is actually, I, I think, a, a sincerely faithful man, and a, and yeah. actually, I think you know, within the within the straitjacket of being a serving diplomat, I actually think he's a deeply pastorally minded bishop, and I just I I want him off the chain. I'd like to hear him change the change the record a little bit and tell us what he really thinks. I think it'd be interesting. We got to take a break. Ed, this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to us by the St. Kateri Rosary Walk Summer Internship, in which young men are invited to spend their summer working in the Diocese of Gallup through the Southwest Indian Foundation in the Catholic Pueblo Revival Project uh, in a summer of aura at Labora, working, learning how to make and build with adobe bricks, hauling rocks, building retaining walls, learning stonework and masonry, and at the same time living in a Christian community of prayer and fun and discipleship. This looks like an incredibly fun thing to do. If I were 20 years younger, I would be signing up for this. This looks like terrific fun. It looks like exactly the sort of way to spend a period of time, as you say, working and praying, but doing so in a way that, first of all, you're constructing something that is of immediate and lasting benefit. Lasting value. Mm -hmm. Lasting value, which is this, you know, stations going through the, the shrine at St. Kateri and everything. Um, you're doing something really fantastically fun and cool that you won't be able to do anywhere else, like learning how to do, you know, the traditional Adobe thing. I mean, yes, there's a, there's a spin of this where you're being invited to come and bake bricks in the hot sun, but you know, hear me out guys. Cause this sounds but like a lot of fun. That, that's like saying that Benedict in life is, you know, just right. milking cows. No, the, the making bricks in the hot sun in itself is quite cool and learning so is how milking to, cows, to, let's be clear but yeah, yeah but yeah. like learning how to work with traditional sort of masonry techniques and all of that yeah. is quite cool but what this is an invitation to is to be a part of a christian community that will be unlike any part of your life thereafter nine weeks without you know a cell phone in your pocket all the time nine weeks without knowing what's happening on tiktok nine weeks being outside doing hard work going to the grand canyon going to chaco canyon i imagine diving into crystal clear streams and after hard work spending time with the the catholic native american community there yeah. i mean it's just and learning how to pray yeah yeah i mm -hmm. would do this maybe they'll have us there i don't know i would <laughs> i hope i hope they'll have us there to kind of I mean, look, I don't know how to make them. <laughs> I would be completely useless there, actually. <laughs> no, I mean, I like, be... as a walkthrough. Like, can I come? Can we just go for a walkthrough for a week? Completely, like... completely useless. So here's the deal. Actually, I'd be terrified um, of you trying to make bricks. You, you, the last time you tried to do an out and among the people thing with the with the pilgrimage walk, you broke your ankle. So I room, board, food, challenge, discipleship, holiness, 
And uh, interns get paid $5,000 for doing all of that, which is a pretty good amount of money to make over your summer vacation, at least as far as I can tell. So check it out. Follow the link in our show notes. And guys, really think about the St. Kateri Rosary Walk Internship. Um, Do something cool with your hands for the kingdom this summer and watch your heart be transformed by it. Seriously, check it out. All right, well... Fiducia supplicants. More? You want to talk about more? No. What do you want to talk about? Well, let's let's stay sidecar to that. Okay. How are you feeling about Cardinal Fernandez and how he's doing? How it? am I feeling about Cardinal Fernandez? Let me say something about that. Sure. I notice more and more that the young people, by which I mean kids, at least the kids that my kids know. Oh, okay. I wasn't I, sure if by kids you meant like... 30 year olds or something. The kids that my kids know. If I ask them a question to which the proper answer is, I think X, Y, or Z, Mm -hmm. they more persistently have taken up um, a a, a turn of phrase, which I find problematic. I feel like X. And I look, I think facts care about your feelings. I care about your feelings. I think emotional health is important. I have suggested, Ed, to you that you might find talk therapy to be a useful. engagement in life i I, i'm uh, i'm a man (laughs) i'm a man who is comfortable with the notion of emotional lives but i am concerned about this use of the phrase i feel like to proceed in answer which has clearly been derived rationally Um, did i just say that no you asked me how i'm feeling about cardinal fernandez when what you i think want to know is what i think about cardinal fernandez i don't think you're interested in what kind of feelings he gives Oh, well, me. no, I, I phrased the question to you that way because, I mean, you're the feelings I just want guy. to say, I don't know what to do about this. When I hear the kid, my friend, kids, friend, my kids' friends say this kind of thing, I don't know what to do because I don't want to be like this weird grown-up that's like, I don't think that's what you feel like, Johnny. I think that's what you think. You know what I mean? But I do really wish to correct this particular grammatical thing because it's- I understand and I have, I have, now that you've mentioned it, I can say that, yes, I have heard that becoming more and more common. But- there, it's better than what preceded it. Namely, for a long time, people were saying they when they wanted to say what I think is what they would say is the fact is, and that <laughs> used to drive me insane. Is you know when someone before introducing an opinion, someone prefixes it with the fact is. Everyone knows that you know, orange soda is the best or something. Other like, it's not a fact. It's not you know. Then yeah, um, let's just say Fanta, European Fanta is one of the planet's greatest sodas. I've drinking a lot of soda in my time. Sure. I, you know, I, the fact is that European Fanta is excellent. <laughs> no, no, it's not, it's not a fact. It's your opinion and that's fine. You're entitled to it. And it may even be the correct opinion, but that doesn't make it a fact. So you agree that European Fanta is objectively great. I agree it's objectively better than the debased weird e-numbers thing that they sell over here in bottles labeled Fanta. Uh, I'm just trolling you now. Oh. You didn't like the fact is. I don't like I feel like. But I don't I don't think that either of us can be the kind of dads who just are correcting kids' speech all the time. I don't want to be that kind of dad. And yet I want this to be resolved. This is a problem for the schools. I want the schools to do this. I want to write a note to my children's teacher saying, please correct this in your classroom. 
Ed is holding up a sign that says, I'm silently correcting your grammar. And yes, I would like to. I am not only am I going to be that kind of dad, I am that dad already. Yes, but what I'm saying in this situation is I would like to be able to continue being the good guy and I would like to outsource Uh, bad guy to the schools. uh, I'm paying them. Ah. I'm going to write a note to the teachers of my children saying, please correct this among all the children. And you will shock them. But what's funny is <laughs> if you want to communicate with academic authorities, you have to do so in a non-confrontational way that's very respectful, um, that you know comes from a position of not quite supplication, but you know, an understanding that you that, that that you need to, you know, with a bit of fear and trembling in your in your approach. And probably the way you will get the best hearing is if you start by saying, I feel like <laughs> That will be the most non-threatening way of engaging. I'm going to lobby. What I think I'm going to do is I'm going to lobby the principal. If you come in and say, the fact is they need to learn proper grammar, they will slam the door in your face so hard. I think, I think. Okay. Do you want to know what I think about Cardinal Fernandez? I I would like to know what your assessment is, your rational assessment of how Cardinal Fernandez is doing, because he is, he, he's making some waves. I mean, I'm not just. Cardinal Fernandez is a survivor. You think That's so? what I would say at this point. Card- I would say pe- – I keep hearing people say, look, this fiducia supplicants thing has been nuts. Cardinal Fernandez is going to resign or these great many books that Cardinal Fernandez has published that are problematic because they contain sexual content and correlated to 16-year-olds I mean he's going to resign. I observe that Cardinal Fernandez seems to deflect the criticism that comes his way by a combination of – um, selective openness, namely being available to the press in very many ways, with a with a with a um, sense of being candid, and uh, has the kind of single minded moving forward that will probably lead these things to have no implications for him. I think that Cardinal Fernandez is demonstrating that he is, as it were, a survivor, and for all of the messes that have come uh, up during his brief tenure as prefect of the DDF. He will be in that job as long as Francesco, the first piece be upon him, is the pontiff. Ah, okay. So there's all right. You've introduced you. You've you said something with which I was about to disagree violently, but then you've qualified it with a very narrow time horizon. <laughs> um, well, I would expect a new. I would expect a new prefect of the DDF subsequently. Well, no, but it is custom that you confirm the incumbent in the role for the duration of their. You know, denomination of five years. Oh, yeah. And I don't think that the new pope – I don't even think that the new pope, unless he wants to um, signal something, will necessarily not confirm. Interesting because I that's – I've been hearing the opposite. I mean you've been you, – you said, you know, you hear all this stuff. Oh, this is a train wreck. Cardinal Fernandez is going to resign. This is terrible. Cardinal Fernandez. I've not heard anyone suggest that Cardinal Fernandez is going to resign. I'm not saying resign. I think people who know – I know, Ooh, I know, but yeah. you're saying that that's the that's, that's the, the zeitgeist. Yeah, that's, that's the zeitgeist, zeitgeist. and I I don't have it. I don't I I don't think that holds any water or bears any yeah. resemblance to reality whatsoever. Um, but what I am hearing a lot of from people around Rome and the Curia is he's making so much noise and so many messes that the next pope may not forget not reappoint him. May not, you know, may replace him immediately. May not, you know, even give him the courtesy of, you know, the the nunc pro took confirmatio. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and I don't know. I mean, that's that, that's a full game to, to guess at because it yeah. will depend entirely on who the next pope is and when the next yeah. pope happens and all that mm-hmm. stuff. But what I what I'm interested in is accepting all of that. 
you described him as a single-minded, shark-like, driven survivor. And and that's a very different interpretation to the one that I've heard of him from around the Curiel campfire, which is not that he's- Hold on one second. That is an extraordinary rhetorical tactic. Uh, if you want to offer a competing vision of Fernandez to my vision of Fernandez, it is an extraordinary tactic to say, but that's different from the one I've heard from my pals in the Roman Curia. I have not brought my pals into the Roman Curia, in a, you know, into this at all. And if what you're going to say is that our pals in the Roman Curia have said to us that there's a great deal of frustration with Fernandez among among bureaucrats and functionaries and officials of the Roman Curia, yes, we have both heard that. The question is how you and I are interpreting it. And you're doing a very good job of making an implicit appeal to authority for your position by correlating it to information we've both received from our friends in the Roman Curia. I have not yet said ah. my opinion. No, you haven't because you weren't going to. You were going to say the opinion that you think you're hearing around the so-called Curio campfire. There's no big reveal here. You're not second. You're not like <laughs> predicting my next move. I published a long analysis saying I what people know. in the Roman Curio have told me about this guy. I know, but I don't think that that's at odds with what I'm saying, which is that even though lots of people are mad at him, well, I think he's a survivor. Finish, and maybe you'll find <laughs> <Okay>. out. <laughs> okay. Your characterization of Cardinal Fernandez is the single-minded, driven, purposeful survivor. Always your forward. vision of him. No, that's now, that's now, your vision. That's the one you just articulated. Your vision of him. Well, I, well, I, I'm I'm making my mind up, and I'm setting your. <laughs> and that's why I said it's interesting. That, and because I, you know, the people that I talked to this week in the analysis I put up and everything, their impression of the man, and it, and as you say, it's a it, it declare their interest. They they have to work in and around it for the guy. Um, was of a guy who is almost sort of manic. And is anything but focused and is sort of this sort of whirlwind, the sort of Tasmanian devil. Oh, I see. You know, flailing in all directions. I'm going to do this. Now I'm going to do this. And we're going to oh, talk I about this. Oh, I think he's absolutely frenetic. Oh, I, I, th I think he's absolutely frenetic. I wasn't saying I think no, he's cool as a cucumber. No, you didn't saying, say he was cool, but you said he was single-minded and purposeful and very eyes the on the prize of his forward. agenda. Yeah. And that's but not that he's – Okay. I, I, I didn't I, realize I, those things seemed to, in contradiction to each other. Well, they they – to 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 use a phrase, I feel instinctively like they are in tension, if not in okay. contradiction. And so Perhaps I'm exploring so. my feel. You like it when I talk about my feelings? I'm exploring my feelings around <laughs> these competing interpretations of Cardinal Fernandez, and I'm doing a bit of talk therapy with you about it. Right? I now. see. Okay, great. Is that is, is if I've given you a, a hermeneutical key for this conversation that you're comfortable with now? Is that does this now that I've framed this as therapy for me? Can we talk? Proceed. 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 All right. Um. I don't, I don't get. The, I mean, the 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 big criticism, and I mean, I didn't. Put, I I alluded to this in the analysis, and I didn't, you know, write it down in great detail, even though I heard it more than once because it seemed to me too sharp, um, without a countervailing point of view, which I which I was unable to secure. Uh, I didn't want to present it in an unbalanced way. Was the suggestion that Cardinal Fernandez is a man of? They described him as being as a as appearing to be very personally insecure in the job. Um, rather than being a sort of that's interesting survivor, someone who you know they said it is very unusual when a DDF secretary or prefect is appointed to have his entire bibliography attacked, yeah. well, not his entire bibliography, minus the ones that are about sexy stuff, minus mm -hmm. those two books. Um, his his entire bibliography attached to the press release, like that. They feel like they they were saying that his whole thing is you know to say as one guy put it to me, I'm 
I'm big enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. And that's what all of the sort of, you know, constant new thing, new thing, new thing, new thing. I'll give an interview. I'll turn up here. I'll publish a document on this. I'll do that. Is that it's it's a giant exercise in justification of, of the job he's in. And that to me doesn't sound like a driven survivor. That to me sounds like a striver. Um, well, sure. I, I, I hear what you're saying. Let me tell you sort of what I think is the single-minded element of his agenda, the way in okay. which I think he's single-minded towards towards an agenda. And I don't think those things are necessarily intention. Mm -hmm. I think the publication of Fernandez's um, bibliography, his CV, at the time he was appointed and sort of this uh, the, 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 the kind of press that surrounded that was coupled with a complete reorientation of the notion of the Takashi for the Doctrine of the Faith. Um, Francis issued a document at the same time that he, or, or it was in his appointment letter of Fernandez, I believe, in which Francis said, no longer is the DDF going to be this authoritarian thing, you know, singling out heretics, et cetera. But effectively, the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith is going to be an idea factory, a, a, a bit of a, a bit of a policy shop in which ideas will be floated, in which there will be discussions had, in which we'll focus on symposia. We're going to refashion the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith from authoritative um, magisterial watchdog to useful pastoral and theological think tank, an academic department without, without classes. And that I think is the goal of the Francis, uh, excuse me, of the, yeah, the Francis Fernandez goal is to recast the DDF less as a sort of um, enforcement agency and more as a kind of discussion circle and by extension to, to decentralize the way in which we think about the exercise of authority vis-a-vis -vis the Munista Chendi as propositional rather than authoritative. And in that sense, I think he's a, I think he is very, is very much willing to, to sort of keep taking the, uh, you know, cutting the um, barnacles off his boat and keep his boat going forward and to sacrifice, like, why doesn't he mind dropping everything on fiducia supplicants? This is what I mean about him being single-minded. Hey, I did fiducia supplicants. The Africans pushed back. Okay, sure, whatever. Totally cool. Because the substance of fiducia supplicants is less important for him. And even the notion of fiducia supplicants as being this authoritative thing is less important for him than a recast vision of the exercise of authority in the life of the church. When I talk about him being single-minded, I mean being willing to jettison everything he had said five minutes before in fiducia supplicants in favor of we're moving forward with this recapitulation and reorientation of the dicastery. Okay, except what did he publish last weekend? The sacrament thing. Yeah, you say the sacrament thing. It was a it what was, was it a called? long sacramenty sacramenty sacrament something like that. But it was a long <laughs> systematic treatment of liturgical and sacramental abuse and disregard for matter and form, which called for sanction and admonishment and punishment of people who don't conform to it. It was the most disciplinary yeah, but it treatment also said, of theology I've seen come out of the DDF in, since Mueller yeah, was there. But it also said pretty clearly at the front, we had this in the works since before I got here. And the members of the CDF are really pushing me to say this. And hey, man, this is all true, but I'm not trying to be, you know, a jerk about it. Like there were great pains taken to sort of say, this is this this is from the membership of the DDF, and to therefore have a sort of degree of personal separation from it. Interesting. You're now suggesting a split between the membership of the DDF and the prefect. Oh, I, I, yes. Interesting. Interesting. Because the membership of the DDF at this point. Uh, are members of the DDF under the old paradigm. 
it's interesting too that for do, that that the prefect of the DDF can be separated from its disciplinary section, and what that does is again, you know, the prefect of the DDF Fernandez when he came on, people criticized him for not being having been good at dealing with sexual abuse, and he said like, yeah, yeah, um, I, I'm not a canonist, I'll trust the canonist, but the Pope sort of said that I have this sort of special exemption from that stuff. Now, what that actually means, we don't know because the buck still stops with the prefect before it stops with the Pope. But um, no, it doesn't with him. That's the funny thing. We did a report kind of on cut this. Out. He's completely cut out. There was a change to the proper law of the dicastery. Okay, that's like right. all the Thank normal you. things that, like when the the Feria Quarta meet or the Congresso meet or the Collegium meet to discuss this sort of stuff. He's not only not chairing it; he's not invited. So there again, you have prefect separated from authority, and and it seems to me that the kind of single-minded mission I'm talking about. And I, 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 I'm not an armchair psychologist, but I play one on a podcast. <laughs> um, you know, I think you might be right about his insecurity and all of those things. I, that's seems, not my opinion. That's some... I know. Many fine people are saying. <laughs> many, that's, fine, many people are saying. That's what you did. You trumped me. You trumped me when you said my the, around the curial... <laughs> I laid out a position and he said, look, I don't think anything, but, uh, you know, many fine people many are saying. Many fine people you are totally saying. totally trumped me. Um, I was surprised how easy that was. And I was, fell actually. for it. Like Nikki Haley in a candidate's debate. I was like, don't you go there, Mr. Trump. Um, gosh. I guess Did I'm going to be watch deba- You watch candidates' debates? Uh, yeah, because I like Simon and Garfunkel so much. Um, oh, I would rather slam my hand in a desk. <laughs> uh, it seems to me that he is willing – when I say single-minded, it's that. That the focus is – in line with what Gerlanda says about authority and mission and office, a big unsung and underappreciated part of this papacy is a reorientation of the relationship between authority, office, mission, and orders. And to recast the prefect of the holy office as a guy who can float something and then walk it back because bishops ask him to is a big deal in that sense. This might be the most substantial part of the show, I think, because that's important. I, it's interesting you say that. I <laughs> that is not how I've been interpreting it, um, but that's a very interesting way of interpreting it. I I I thought we have been and we have written about over the last several years this sort of mission creep of the Holy See and the winding back of the ecclesiology of Vatican II and the marginalization of the authority of the diocesan bishops and the downplaying of the College of Cardinals. And I was watching the sort of fallout of fiducius supplicans and saying, aha, the College of Bishops has woken up and realized it still exists. And that, yes, the relationship to the Petrine See and acting always together with its head and never without its head, Bishop of Rome, is one thing. But there are actually hard – there is a hard limit to what they will take from a dicastery of the Roman Curia that doesn't come as a as a full-blown – um, informa specifica papal document, like a, de- a declaration. I mean, don't get me wrong. A declaration from the DDF is not a, it's not a light thing. It's a, it's a heavy thing in itself. Um, but I, I, I was reading it as, oh, the college of bishops has, has woken up and they said, all right, enough is enough. We're, we're tired of every dicastery feeling like they can just jab their finger in our chest and tell us what we're going to do. I don't think those things are mutually exclusive because I think for the College of Bishops, they push back. But why didn't they get much resistance? And you have an interesting answer to that. The other answer to that is because Cardinal Fernandez is insecure intellectually and couldn't back up his own original position and brought a toothbrush to a knife fight. 
That could be. be, but we have said now for many years, look, the the Pope is open to differing doctrinal interpretations in different differing places. And now yes. you get it. Now the thing they say about fiducius supplicants in Africa is really weird. I, I still don't understand it. The thing which the Holy See has said, the Holy Fathers repeated this several times, is the bishops of, Af of Africa don't like fiducius supplicants, the blessing of homosexual persons, because homosexuality is a crime in their country. I cannot find the logical thread there. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying I can't find it. And do you understand that? Um, yeah. What are they getting at there? I, I, I mean, they... It's a weird thing, and I'm by no means the first person to make this observation or point, but the only – I mean, this has been said a couple of different times, both by Cardinal Fernandez and Pope Francis with regarding to the Africans and, and, how, and their response to fiducius of the cons, is that, well, the Africans have said they're not going to do anything like this. And that's fine because in Africa, homosexuality is considered uh, – homosexual unions and activity is considered a criminal offense and is, is considered morally wrong and unnatural. But you agree that's a non sequitur, right? And also the implication. A, well, no, it's not that it's a non sequitur. It's that the implications are like, what are you saying? The the, I mean, because there's only two possible interpretations of what's being said there. Um, either you are saying the treatment of homosexual persons is such that it would be, you know, dangerous, inflammatory, provocative to try and do these things. And that will be bad both for the people who might receive such blessings and for the institutional church. So you're not going to do it for that reason. Well, we don't particularly care about that. We, we're not expressing any value judgment on, you know, the, the absolute absence of any kind of pastoral recognition or accompaniment or um, recognition of the fundamental human dignity of homosexual persons, which the church teaches and holds and it's right there in the catechism and says must be done. Apparently you don't care about that. Or the other alternative is they're speaking entirely about same-sex unions and that there isn't, you know, as there is in the West, uh, a legal framework for same-sex partnerships and civil unions and all the other sort of stuff that's sort of aping marriage. And 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 so because they don't have that, um, they they don't feel the need to make an accommodation halfway with fiducia supplicans to, you know, to do this other sort of stuff. It's like, but isn't, isn't rejecting same-sex civil unions, what the church teaches? Like, so I, it, it doesn't, the, the, the two possible interpretations are basically either, well, you have to understand that homosexual people are subject to violent persecution in Africa, and that doesn't particularly bother me, or that's not me saying that, I'm saying that's the implication of the statement that has been made about, you know, this sort of African exception. Or the other alternative is, well, of course, in Africa, they haven't quite realized yet that everywhere else in the world, we've ditched the natural law understanding of human sexuality and they'll get with the program eventually, but we're not really in any hurry for them to get there. Right. Neither one of those things makes any sense or is a satisfactory answer. Right. Um, I, again, I think it's because there isn't a coherent position behind it. I think that's right. That's, you know, and that's the reason. <laughs> yeah. And that might prompt a person towards insecurity. It might. Well, Ed, we're never insecure. Right, wrong, or indifferent, we're never insecure, at least. Often in error, never in doubt. That's my motto. Should we? We probably need to wrap this show up. I know we've got some. We probably do, but it is um, it is next Wednesday, of course, Valentine's Day. Yeah, you mean Ash Wednesday. It's both. Neither is a holy day of obligation, so you can take your pick, really. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. I like most the churches which, in addition to offering Mass on Ash Wednesday, which people regard as an uh, as an offering just 
offer standalone ashes for long periods of time. I have no idea what the rubrics say about that, but the availability of standalone ashes seems to me to be a kind of cool, um, you know, I, you, it was you who said recently, you know, not everything has to be a mass that there are other, I think yes. we were talking in this show and there are other kinds of ways yes. of expressing Christian piety and devotion and stuff like that. Ash Wednesday mm-hmm. seems to me to be one of those days where not everything has to be a mass is, is quite right. And, um, yes. yeah. And, uh, um, you know, um, anyway, I, th- I always think that's cool. Yeah. I, so that's, but, uh, with, with regard to Valentine's day, would you like to play a quick, quick game? Quick game? Oh, sure. Me? Sure. I have here some some Valentine's Day customs or traditions or, or or what have you, and I and I thought you might give a give a quick thumbs up thumbs down on them. And and all right, so we'll we'll start with the easy stuff. Dinner out with the missus presumably. on Valentine's Day. Yeah, for well for Valentine's Day. It's a day of fasting. For Valentine, we're talking about Valentine's Day. Yeah, it's a day of fasting. Ash Wednesday. No, no. Ash Wednesday is a day of fasting. Valentine's Day is something separate. They happen to fall on the same day this year. Try and put yourself for two seconds in the in the chairs of our listeners who will find that joke very, very old very, very quickly. <laughs> Empathy. What did you learn that in therapy? Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, I don't like to go out on uh, for dinner on Valentine's Day. You don't like the the sort of candle in the Chianti bottle the and you know. sort of prefix yeah. Valentine's Day. To, uh, actually, maybe I do. Maybe it's a nice American custom. I, I'll say yes, sure. Huh. Okay. Um, flowers. You 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 have flowers on Valentine's Day. Mrs. Always you know. Kate and I are not particularly observant with regard to Valentine's Day, mm-hmm. to say the least. Mm-hmm. I bought Kate a present that I gave to her yesterday. That was not for Valentine's Day. It was just a present because she, Kate, my wife almost never says that she wants something. Oh, yeah. She, she almost never wants something. And she recently expressed something that she wanted that she felt that she should not buy for herself. And so I went to the store yesterday and I bought it and I had it wrapped and I gave it to her. Nice job. Unexpected gift, unexpected time. Well, I said to her, did you think that I was going to buy it for you? And she said, yeah, because I said I wanted it about 15 times. So it wasn't that unexpected. But the point is, I gave her that gift on the 8th of February or the 7th of February, and it will probably be the closest we come to sort of exchanging gifts of any kind related to Valentine's Day as such. So flowers on Valentine's Day? Sure. I like having flowers in our house. We almost always have fresh flowers in our house. And we have a friend who has a bakery or a bakery business. She, I suppose rents time in a commercial kitchen and bakes things. Um, and she she's very smart. She sent out an email to like about 50 husbands the other day that said, um, reply to this email, yes, if you want me to bake a thing that I will del- that you can pick up on the 13th because the 14th is Ash Wednesday. And all any of these men had to do was reply yes, and I did reply yes. So I will have a baked treat in our home on the day preceding Valentine's Day. Will it be pig-shaped? No. Oh. Well, because this is the next thing on my list is um, exchange of pigs on Valentine's Day. You in, in favor of that? Is that a... It is. In Germany, on Valenstag. In Germany. In Ooh. Germany, pigs are apparently... Um, it, it seems that on Valentine's Day, they exchange pigs or pig-shaped things because pigs are a symbol of good luck, and I would assume prosperity. Also, <laughs> pigs are delicious. So uh, if you I are, have to say, wishing someone good luck on Valentine's Day seems terrifically presumptuous and unseemly. I uh, find that uncomfortable. Well, that may be, but good luck, pal. I, no, that's not don't don't say that. That's weird. I, I no pigs. No pigs. 
but apparently this is a thing that is done or so the Germans would have us believe. Um, Okay. uh, Mass weddings for Valentine's day. Wedding celebrated during the sacred liturgy no. or many people getting married? Many, many, many people. Thousands of people getting married all at once in one ceremony. Is this a this thing? This is a thing in the Philippines. Uh, on Valentine's Day, local authorities will hold mass wedding services for couples who might otherwise not be able to afford a wedding. Are they observing ecclesiastical form? I It's the Philippines, so I would assume there's probably some overlap there. It's Again, this is local yeah, government, observing- and so it's municipality by municipality. Um, I like when Catholics get married in groups. You do. I do. Um, I think that – I always think that's cool. I think it's a sign of the vitality of the church. People don't get ordained by themselves and I think it's a sign of the vitality of the church when Catholics get married in groups. Not two groups but um, in groups. That uh, seems – there could be a lot of. I think it's there cool. could be a lot of strong opinions about how a wedding should go. Look, it completely undermines the sort of notion that this is my day. Yeah, yeah this it is does. the church's that, day. It absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh huh. This is the church's day, and you come and you. So I think it's cool when cat like one of the when I was in Dubai this year and I saw that the parish has basically uh, one wedding date a month and you sign up for it mm-hmm. after you've you know met with the pastor. I thought that was cool. Um, so yeah, I, I I can I can take it. Cool. I, I'm I'm afraid for that. Well done. You don't like when Catholics get married in groups? No, I I don't have strong feelings about it one way or another. I, um, having already done the wedding thing, I I simply look at it from the outside and go, I I would find that stressful to be in the middle of as someone who didn't have strong opinions about much of my wedding, but realized that orbiting around me were a number of people who had very, very strong opinions about it. I don't know how you do that with multiple brides, multiple sets of parents, multiple, you know. But I mean, maybe that's the thing is it just becomes an all or nothing. Like, you know, month past a certain number, it's like, no, there's no compromise here. This is just how it's going to be. And a third party is going to determine all. Right. There's not a lot of discussion about the liturgy. And what I think is cool is, look, individual, like, atomization is a major problem among young married. Many young married couples say, we don't have any community with this kind of thing. We're all by ourselves. We're isolated. But there's a kind of kinship that's born out of having shared a wedding. And so there may be this sort of instant cohesion. And not only that, but like, how would you like to be the parents of the groom or bride? And not not only do you have this in-law cohesion with your child's, the parents of your child's beloved, but you also, like all the parents would have this, I hope, neat social cohesion if they, their children were being married in the same liturgy. I, I just think it's cool. Okay. And a sign of the vitality. You're the making it. I, I, I started off ambivalent. You're making this sound a little Mormon for me, but okay. I. <laughs> I'm surprised because you. I'm surprised. I, I again. I have. I, I started off with no strong feelings on this, and I I'm leaving with no strong feelings. I I merely present this as a thing that happens on Valentine's Day in the Philippines, to which you could say yes or no. Have you ever thought how weird it'd be if our kids got married? No, I haven't thought about that at all. I've never thought about that. Oh, okay. Yeah, me neither. Oh, God. That's what you want to happen. <laughs> no, it's not oh. what I want to happen. I've thought about it. I've thought many times, do I want it to happen? Oh. Uh, and the answer that I've come <laughs> to is no. You've thought about many times, do I want this to happen? How much time have yeah, you spent thinking about our children getting married? We could arrange it. Like, we could arrange it. <laughs> yes. Yes, we could. I have no objection to arranging marriages for uh, um, oh no! I'm, I'm strongly in favor of arranged marriages. Yeah. I think arranged so marriages are a wonderful idea, and cement our alliance and these sort of things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
It would simplify the inheritance of ownership of the pillar it considerably. Would be, it would be, yes, it would make it would it would give us much clarity on what to do with the pillar in our dotage. I I, I come I, I come around to the fact that it would be too much to ask. And <laughs> too much to ask of me. You ask for my daughter. You come to me like this to ask for my daughter because it makes tax planning and your retirement simpler. And I might need other lines. Like we're already allied. I might need other alliances. That's and, right. You know, so I'm basically I'm putting all my eggs in the cotton basket at that point. Yeah. And so it it feels a bit incestuous to me. I yeah. Um and yet I'm I'm also certain that your daughter's being raised in a Catholic household with very many Lenten practices. And so, you know, I think she probably satisfies the requirements that I would have for person who might wish to marry myself. Oh, I'm so, glad to know that she'll probably make the cut. <laughs> That's extremely generous of you. <sighs> Moving on. Um, the birds and the bees, JD. What does that mean? Well, which, which word are you struggling with? And I'll see if I can define it better for you. You've got the birds and you've got the bees. I just don't know what you mean. The birds and the bee. The tweet, tweet, and buzz, buzz. Are you talking about No, you weirdo. What's the matter with I'm, you? I'm, this is a well-known Slovenian Valentine's Day tradition that February 14th, mid-February is when nature starts waking up after winter. And it is traditional to go barefoot through the frozen fields to observe the birds, which are birds and bees are believed to mate. Uh, particularly in February. And so the idea is that you go to watch the, the spring season begin no! as Boom! the as the birds sort of nestle up to each other and the branches and the beehives no! start to wake up. No. Wow. Visceral reaction to You're saying do I want to go watch Slovenian birds mate? Well like like turtle doves, like sitting on a branch together and cooing and you know I don't know the types of birds. But the answer is no. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Gangan Mayon. What's that? Uh, is it a Filipino pudding? No, it's it's the South Korean um, noodle dish, which I think they use squid ink for. Uh, you, you eat black yes. noodles if you're on your own on Valentine's oh. Day. Um, and it's sure. called Gangan Mayon. And gang, I think gang of my own. Sure. Yeah, totally. It is yeah. actually phonetically. It would be. Your gang on my own, um, it, but it's uh, you. Yeah, you you eat you eat black noodles on Valentine's Day to to lament your solitary status. Which I think I love squidding pasta, and you know a quiet meal on your own once in a while is a win in itself. So I I think it's a good one. But that sounds me. wonderful. Yeah, um, and finally Valentine's cards, leaving a Valentine homemade, of course. You get out the construction paper and the Elmer's glue and the glitter. So, um, yes. That's it? You're just going to give me a straight yes? This is the first time in the history of this game you're actually just going to say yes or no. I'm trying to play by That's the amazing rules here, to me. Man. I'm trying, okay, trying yes. to honor your desire for me to play by the rules. That's great. I know. Fantastic. Do you, by way of interest, do you know, the tradi- do you know where the tradition comes from? Valentine's? Yeah. And referring yeah. to someone as as is be my Valentine that sort of thing. I do. I think I wrote about it in my newsletter last year. Did you? 
I'm, I know that I've written about this. I mean, we look, we've been in Catholic media a long time, so if there's a Catholic adjacent sort of story, we've we've written about it. But I, I'm like oh, 90%. I thought I was bringing something new to the table here. I, I, but I don't remember. I just know. I just I know that I've written about it. Look, here's my newsletter from February 14th, 2023, in which I talk about the heart of St. Valentine. Yeah. Uh, okay. As Valentine, before Valentine, St. Valentine was martyred, he was a bishop. He dashed off a quick note of encouragement to the daughter of Asterius, uh, who is a, the judge in his case, and signed the note, your Valentine. Correct. Thus launching the romantic essay. I wrote about this last year. I, he I, also, I apparently, that. the reason he was writing notes of encouragement to his, his imprisoner's daughter is because he'd cured her of blindness. That's right. So... Uh, this judge. So Valentine was placed under arrest in the residence of a Roman judge. So he was house arrested in the judge's house and he began preaching the gospel. Asterius brought Valentine to his blind daughter, brought to Valentine his blind daughter, uh, telling the bishop that if Valentine prayed over the girl and she was restored to sight, he would do whatever the bishop asked of him. So Valentine prayed over the girl. She was restored to sight. To sight. Valentine did not ask to be set free as was expected. Do you know what he asked for? Uh, for someone else to be set free? No, he asked the judge to um, convert, smash all the idols in his house. Oh, nice. To fast for three days and then to be baptized. The judge did that. Then he freed Valentine. And put to death. <laughs> right, like, well, you got one wish, pal. <laughs> it, ain't, it ain't inadmissible yet. Wow. Um, I mean, got, you got to no. hope that for the judge's sake that he, he smashed all the idols to show good will, to show good intent, you know, his bona fides martyred valentine and then sought baptism because otherwise you're he uh the sequencing there is very important if you're going to get away with it he smashed all the idols fasted for three days was baptized freed valentine and a number of other christians but valentine was arrested again ah and while he was waiting to be martyred after his second arrest he He sent a note to asterius's daughter yeah you're you're valentine okay that's good so one story says that while valentine was waiting martyrdom he witnessed the marriage of several Christian couples who themselves were waiting for execution. So, like sure, a bunch he's of he's people. well known for having having witnessed the the marriages of, of. And we can presume that he had delegation, or yeah, I mean, I we have to assume he had some sort of jurisdiction, but yeah, yeah, okay, okay, all right. Well, um, next time you are stuck for a speech, don't go to God even space. Just vamp about Valentine because apparently you can do that too. <laughs> my uh, my funny Valentine. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Adam J.D. Production Executive Producers, Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. Ed, uh, my future b- brother-in-law. No, my future. What, what is the relationship of in-laws to each other? Ed, my co-host is Ed, my future in-law, Condon. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. Uh-huh.